1: Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, I'm Rob Wolf, and today I'm speaking with author Ramez Nam, whose book Apex won this year's Philip K. Dick Award. This is actually my sixth and final interview with this year's nominees of the Philip K. Dick Award, which recognizes the best paperback original science fiction novel of the year. And I suppose it's a perfect way to end the series of interviews by speaking with the winner of the award. Uh, You can listen to my interviews with other nominees on our website or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And now I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, Ramez Nam. He was born in Cairo, Egypt and came to the U.S. at the age of three. He is the winner of the 2005 H.G. Wells Award for his nonfiction book More Than Human, Embracing the Promise of Biological Enhancement. And he spent 13 years at Microsoft, where he led teams developing early versions of Microsoft Outlook, Internet Explorer, and the Bing search engine. And he also founded a, com- a company called Apex Nanotechnologies. He holds 19 patents related to a bunch of things like search engines and information retrieval and web browsing. The first book in his Nexus trilogy was Option for a film by Paramount Pictures and director Darren Aronofsky and the books in the Nexus Trilogy have won a whole bunch of uh, awards. The Prometheus Award, just collectively, the Prometheus Award, the Endeavor Award, been listed on NPR's list of best books of the year, and been shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Kitchy's Golden Tentacle Award. They earned NOM a nomination for the Campbell Award for Best New Author in 2014, and of course the final book in the Nexus Trilogy, Apex, like I said, won the Philip K. Dick Award this year. So Uh, Welcome to the show, or I'm going to say welcome back to the show, because my predecessor, Dan Nexon interviewed you in 2012 about the first book in the trilogy.
0: Hey, Rob, it's great to be back.
1: Let's start off maybe with you explaining exactly what Nexus is. So that's the name of the trilogy, that's the name of the first book, and it's the name of a little pill that your characters take, and, and what does it do Exactly.
0: Yeah, Nexus is a drug that's highly illegal. That if you swallow it, puts little nanobots in your brain that basically broadcast your brain state via something like Wi Fi. And so, if you and I both took it and we were close, we'd have sort of a telepathy. Uh, or you can, people start writing apps against it and running code in their brains. Uh, that's what Nexus is.
1: And it's, it, it really allows people to, at some point, and I gather over the course of the series, I mean, we're sort of focusing on the last book, but it becomes more and more powerful and allows people to really, you know, uh, exchange full memories, like their full consciousness, it sounds like.
0: People definitely do all kinds of stuff with it, from hackers to neuroscientists to Buddhist monks meditating together to people having sex, people playing music. Uh, so I tried, to, I tried to take sort of the William Gibson you know, cyberpunk idea and imagine if, like other technologies like smartphones and things like that, it went from just a few elite out to the masses, what would happen? And people use it in all
1: sorts of incredible ways. And so, um, by Apex, which is the third book, how many people actually have it? Millions, billions uh, have have Nexus at that point. It's something
0: like a million people around the world have Nexus. The beginning of Apex, and it's starting to spread like wildfire.
1: Well, and you present it as very much, you know, a coin with two sides. There's there's amazing, wonderful things that can come with this kind of connection between people, and there's clearly bad things, and. And I guess I want to connect this to the debate about transhumanism. You know, people transforming and I guess hopefully trans improving themselves uh, with technology. Um, some people in your book and uh, I guess in the world today are thrilled by the idea of transhumanism, and others are scared by it. I-, I wonder what arguments you find most compelling for it, and and if there are arguments that or there are things about it that worry you.
0: Yeah. So. In real life, outside of my novels, I never use this word transhuman or transhumanist. And the reason is that, you know, it's sort of defined as like someone who uh, has upgraded themselves in some way. But I've got a contact lens in, I've got a smartphone, I've got a Fitbit. (laughs) Like, you know, my fiance is on birth control. We have already upgraded ourselves quite a lot. So my, my view in reality is that generally when you... Give someone the option of technology that improves their life in some way, and it's safe enough, and it's cheap enough, and enough of the people have done it already—they're not the very first ones. People are just going to do it because people want these things. Uh, but you know, everything is a little bit of a double-edged sword. No technology ever comes with zero downsides, and so my—you know—phone means, and the digital world means that hackers can steal my identity or steal money from my accounts. Uh, or it lets child porn uh, go wild, or the NSA can spy on all of us far more easily, or I just get, you know, sucked into Facebook all the time. So there's always going to be some downside. I think that's the same is true of sort of the science fictional versions of this.
1: The sense I got from the way the story evolved was that you think that uh, ultimately, there's a way, and it sounds like what you're describing right now, that it can be managed and controlled by society. That we can we can progress and examine both both the pros and cons going forward, and and find a way to maximize the pros, I suppose, and minimize the cons.
0: Yeah, I think as as uh, foolish as humanity is, and we're pretty foolish a lot of the time, we have to do a pretty good job. Like if you look around, technology overwhelmingly is used more to produce positive outcomes for people than it is to hurt people. Even though you know, airplanes were used massively in war and trains ferried soldiers to the front lines and we made nuclear bombs, Like, still, overall, mostly we've used technology from the wheel to virtual reality to make our lives better. So I think that's what will happen with uh, most new sci-fi tech, too.
1: One of the stars of Apex is a, I don't know, is she a huge artificial brain? Like, how do you describe her? She was once a living scientist, and she, she actually aspires to something that goes beyond transhumanism, it sounds like, and calls it post-humanism, which is a little scary, actually. So, so you chose to introduce a character like that with those kinds of ambitions. That doesn't send the most encouraging message about a future of brain interconnectedness.
0: Yeah, so Su Yong-shu is a, a Chinese scientist who, uh, in the first book, you find out some things about her, uh, who has had her brain uploaded into a massive quantum computer. And so she's the first truly digital person, and she's running on this ph- phenomenally powerful you know, quantum mainframe, basically, uh, but she hasn't been treated very well uh, by the Chinese at all. And so they've employed to- torture and sensory deprivation and so on, uh, and they've driven her a little bit insane, uh, maybe more than a little bit actually. And so there's you know this common trope in sci-fi of the super powerful AI, and it's almost always a bad guy. And so I, I show Su Young as um, you know a danger, uh, but I also I think you see the world much more from her perspective and see that the people who have uh, been treating her so badly are, you know, much more to blame than, than her as an individual.
1: Right. And you do make the point, I mean, I guess, because she is artificial, she can be duplicated. So you can contrast her and you do, there's sort of the the insane version of her. And then there's the part of her, there's a, there's a version of her that isn't insane and who is much more um, thoughtful and uh, has more compassion and human, good, positive human qualities.
0: Yeah, so I I try to show – I mean, she is a human who's just running on a different substrate in a way. So I try to show multiple aspects of her. And and yeah, at some point, someone else gets a copy. A copy of her brain upload is smuggled out of China and is booted up in another place. And that one manages to come back to sanity and then is trying to figure out how to undo the damage that the insane version of her (laughs) has sort of been set on a course to cause.
1: I, I saw something where you were saying that the science in the book is as real as you could make it and that you thought, well, I don't know if this is exactly what you were talking about, but it sounded like you were saying that something like this could happen within you know, a short order. I mean, your book itself is set in 2040. Do you, as someone who actually has one foot in real science and in the world of technology, do you think this is realistic in some form?
0: Not for that time frame. It's going to take a lot longer than that. Like, everything we know about science says it should be possible to upload the human brain. It should be possible to do much better uh, interfaces inside the brain to let us communicate things. And in in cases now, in people who've been paralyzed or rendered blind or uh, otherwise injured, we have technology. Let's get, get data in and out of their brains. It's amazing. But to really get it to the point that I deploy that I... Write about in Nexus is probably going to take a lot longer than 25 more years.
1: Well, what do you think would take to bring it about? Like, what do we need to, where do we need to go with our research or our, I'm not sure what, our values?
0: Well, I, I think it is about the science, it's about the motivations as well, and it's about the ethics. So I think, like, right now, there's a group at the University of Southern California that's working on a memory prosthesis. So it's a chip that goes in your brain for people that have damaged a part of the brain that makes it so they can't learn new things anymore, this repairs that, right? And when we have that in there, and it works in our apps right now, they're doing their first human experiments. When we have that in there, we'll learn a whole lot about how memory works. And then we'll have technology to sort of muck with memory in various ways. But overwhelmingly, really that's going to be deployed for people that have a brain injury and thus have a messed up memory. To get it to the point that it really takes off You have to get to the point that it's no longer brain surgery, that it's something as easy as swallowing a vial or just an injection or something like that. And that, we don't know how far away that is. That could take a couple decades. It could take 100 years.
1: It's actually, it is hard to imagine someone allowing something that affects our brain, which we associate with our core identity, our essence of who we are. Uh, allowing it to be changed in some way, if it isn't absolutely medically necessary, if we're not thinking this is, I need this because I'm I'm somehow uh, disabled or injured or you know impaired in some way.
0: I mean, it's the ultimate security threat, right? And it's ultimate safety threat. Like something goes wrong with an implant in your brain, that's terrible. Uh, but that said, I can imagine a path where those who've been handicapped in some way or disabled or injured are the first ones to try this technology. But then if you have this technology, it can offer new upgrades. Let me tell you a story about a rat. Okay? So we have these rats that have this memory chip. These rats have had part of their brain damaged. You put them in front of a maze, they will run it. The next time, they are no faster. They learn nothing. You put this memory chip in their brain, and suddenly they can learn again. So they can run the maze, and then they learn. And the next time they run it, it's faster and so on. But they get this new ability. The scientists can record all the data that goes through this chip, all the info, and then a year later, when the rat would have normally forgotten everything, like 30 years equivalent in human time, they can run that data back to the chip, and they put the rat in front of the maze, and the rat will run it like it had just run through the maze five minutes ago. So they're going to store memories. So if you imagine a human who's, you know, they fell off a motorcycle and had some head injury and they can't learn so well anymore, then they get this chip and it not only repairs them, but boosts them to superhuman ability. Then suddenly we're talking about some sort of motivation for other people to say, hey, can I get that too?
1: Well, but you don't have to go to school anymore because you could just buy, you can get a full lifetime of education in a little implant, I suppose, right? Right.
0: Well, there's levels and levels and levels of complexity. Maybe someday, that's that's even harder. But eventually, possibly.
1: Would you like to have this done? I mean, do you imagine? Of course, you're saying it's many years out, and uh, but would you have this done to you? At what at what level of safety? What assurances would you need to to, to say sure? You know, I'll do it.
0: Well, I wouldn't be the first customer. That's <laughs> for sure. Oh yeah, I would love it. I mean. It, I would love to have telepathy. I'd love to be able to share experiences, to uh, assimilate knowledge beamed into my head, to you know run a little piece of code that puts me to sleep, make, makes me fall asleep when I want to and wakes me up right on time. All that would be awesome. Like, of course I'd like that. Now, I, I want to make sure that the security holes are patched uh, before I take it, but...
1: Yeah, exactly. You, I guess the debates we have today with backdoors, NSA backdoors, those kinds of things would would continue on, or be and be that much more much so much more would be at stake, I suppose.
0: Yeah, a lot of the plot of Crux, the second book, comes down to backdoors. So the the protagonists in Nexus add a backdoor to Nexus so they can keep control of it, and that becomes really sort of. Uh, a hot point of conflict you know can if someone has this backdoor, suddenly they can have entry into a million people's brains <laughs> directly and more every day and so does anyone deserve that level of power even the nsa the government so on and that becomes a big conflict
1: well tell me you know how are you so optimistic about technology i think people tend to be although everyone embraces it as you say and and it's true. I mean, I think most people derive much benefit from it. But we all tend to, it seems to me, the most natural kind of science fiction story or future story always looks at the, the dark side. What makes you and I've seen you've called yourself a techno optimist. What how do you explain um, your optimism?
0: It's just the trajectory of the world. Like if you actually look at the world and say, is the world better now than it was 10 years ago, 20, 50, 100 years ago? Heck yeah, absolutely. And an awful lot of that is due to technology. And at the same time, there's whole new ways for things to go wrong. So I think you have an obligation to be honest when you're writing about a better world to show all the the downsides too. It's not like the world gets better because of technology and then all social ills are solved. But it gets better in aggregate while we learn about these new failure modes and have to figure out how to deal with them.
1: How do you prevent the bad things from happening? I mean, what are the mechanisms that you would envision uh are in place now and, and should be in place. Like I mean, you know, the worst case scenario is people using, for instance, the technology using Nexus to to make people obedient to authority or wasn't there a cult or someone who was trying to make an Aryan super race?
0: Yeah, they're doing that with genetic technology. I mean, I think the first thing to understand is you can never totally prevent bad things from happening. And if your focus is on aptly zero bad things happening what you'll find is you create a tyranny. You create an authoritarian state to make that the case. Like, you will never get to that point. Like, think about cars. You can never get to the point where there's zero car accidents. Now, maybe with self-driving cars, we're we'll to the point where there's an awful lot less. But if you really insisted on zero, you're just not going to get there. And certainly with humans behind the wheel, there's no way to make it zero. But we accept that there's some amount of damage that happens, and we do harm reduction. We make it illegal to drink and drive. It's illegal to steal someone's car. It's illegal to uh, speed. It's illegal to, definitely illegal to you know, plow your car into a person intentionally. So we figure out, like, what are the good cases? Allow those. And what are the cases where someone is directly harming someone? And maybe somebody needs to be licensed, too. You have to pass a test to show that you're competent for this. So that's that's a harm reduction sort of approach to this, as opposed to a prohibition approach, which just says, this technology is so scary, we're not going to allow any cars at all. In which case, you're screwed.
1: And how do you, I mean, how do you account for the fact that we are a world of many nations with many laws, which is reflected in your book, where there might be, you know, one side of the world might be tightly regulating something, and another side of the world might be doing it very differently. And, you know, once technology is out there, it's out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. Like, so if, if in the US, you say, we're going to make Uh, let's say we're going to make genetic engineering of babies illegal, and somebody wants it. Well, guess what? It's legal in Thailand. It's legal in Mexico. And so you can go, there's medical tourism to Thailand right now. You can go there, you go to China, you go to India, and you have your procedure done there, and you come back. And that just made life worse. It made life worse because there's more inequality, because a low-income person can't afford to go to Thailand. So you've made the price of all these things higher. B, there's less safety. You don't have like the FDA regulating it and saying, let's just make sure it's safe. You know, And conversely, if you say, okay, we're going to allow it, but we're going to make sure it's safe, we're going to prevent clear abuse and just trust that parents want to do the right things for their kids, you end up with better outcomes.
1: Right. Tell me a little bit about the writing process. You know, Obviously, You've had a lot of professional experience with technology. You know, your book from two thousand five touches a lot on these issues, but you know, this is, these are three really big, page turning, plot twisting yarns. So I just wonder what strategies you used, you know, to pull it all together without. I mean, unless you are in fact transhuman yourself, like. <laughs>
0: Uh David Brin has a, a series of writing advice to people on his blog and some YouTube videos. And one of them is uh, he tells authors, he's like standing in his like, living room and he looks at the camera he says, you need to understand that you are in a sadomasochistic relationship with the reader and you are the sadist. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and what he's saying is you want readers to come to you and say, I didn't go to bed last night because of you. The kids didn't get fed because of you. I'm getting a divorce because of you, because I could not stop reading your book. So I took that advice uh, as far as I could. I said, how do I make it so that people just keep reading? Uh, And that was an overriding rule. Uh, And then beyond that, what I do is I daydream. I daydream scenes that are cool, cool stuff, uh, interesting themes. I put it as much as I can in sort of bullet point form, in a document, and I keep reworking that, keep reworking that until I have a story and characters that make sense. Sort of at bullet points, like an outline. So here are the characters, here's the conflict, here's what happens, sort of, you know, story beat by story beat. And once I've got that, then I start writing to that, so that I can, I sort of know the ins and outs and twists of the plot. Uh, and then I show it to people. So I, I'm not an author who works in isolation. I I have tons of beta readers, 50 or 60 beta readers. So those folks, I take the, when I have a complete first draft, I'll give it to them, as many of them as want it, and then I'll give them a few weeks, and then I'll tell them to tear it apart. i tell them to say, what do you like? What do you not like? And I ask them specific questions. You know, hey, I'm worried I might have made it too violent. Hey, uh, how does it work as far as this character? Hey, do you believe this part where the character is this? Hey, where could you stop reading? Where were you able to put it down? And then I collect all their feedback, I sit around and chat with them, I collect it electronically, and that informs the next draft. And I do three drafts usually before it's done.
1: Trilogies seem particularly challenging, or books that are you know, a series. Did you know the end when you published the first book, or were you still working on it?
0: Um, when I wrote Nexus, I had the idea there might be future books, but I didn't know exactly what they would be. But I kind of knew the themes. You know, Nexus is about this this seminal like debate and conflict about should the technology called Nexus be out in the world. And then, you know, I'll spoil it a little bit. At the end of the first book, it get, goes out to the world and it goes viral. And so the other, the next two books I knew were going to be about that. When I started Crux, the second book, I wrote Crux and Apex almost as one book. Like when I started writing Crux, if I time not had an outline of that, I kind of understood where Apex was going to end also.
1: I was struck by your use of time in uh, in Apex, where you would have many things going on in the course of one day. And I wondered, just from a logistical point of staying organized around that and also describing scenes in a sort of Rashomon-like way where you're in one, one person's perspective and then you you'll switch, you know, with a space break to uh, the, another person's perspective. I think that helped keep it exciting, but I can only imagine that your head was exploding at some points when you were juggling all these facts and events and things.
0: I love Excel. And there's a, uh, the, the, between the outline that is described and writing is actually a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet has every scene every point of view switch in the book, and it has a timestamp of when, you know what day in 2040, at what time does this scene take place? And even I have to like have time zones. I have like Washington DC time, India time, Shanghai time because I'm dealing with these different uh, uh, plots and these different places. And I just, I iterate on that. Like, it, it takes me, let's say, four months to write the first draft. But before that, I've spent two months outlining. And I have, like, the outline down to really pretty granular. And it's not right. I definitely find things that, that change. But I try to, I know that I want this many plot lines, con, you know, converging into one explosive uh, conflict and finale. So I try to structure that from the very beginning and get that as tight as I can before I really write any prose.
1: And what are you working on now? Are you are you thinking about another book, or, or are, are you busy with some of your other uh, entrepreneurial pursuits?
0: Uh, I've got some short stories coming out this year. I'm working on a short story for Hieroglyph. They have a space collection. Uh, Jason Huff and I co-wrote short, two short stories that come out in Mech Age of Steel anthology from Ragnarok. But I'm mostly I am doing clean energy stuff right now, which is my other passion. And then I think next year I'll come back and write another novel.
1: And where's clean energy? Are we getting there? Are we, we going to live in a cleaner world?
0: It's friggin' awesome, actually. <laughs> the cost of solar power in, over my lifetime has dropped by about a factor of 100. Uh, they just had uh, in Dubai, like in the Arabian Peninsula, oil cap of the world, they just took a bids for a new solar plant and it came in at three cents a kilowatt hour, which is less than half the price of coal or natural gas. So there's amazing, amazing progress. It's still early days, but the the innovation is fast and the price is plunging exponentially.
1: Great. And how are what are you specifically doing about that? You're writing about it?
0: I write about it a lot. I blog about it. I do a lot of public speaking about it. So I speak to audiences around the world, and I do a little bit of investing in startups in clean tech.
1: Great. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy advocacy writing life <laughs> to talk with me about uh, Apex.
0: Thanks, Rob. It's awesome to be back. Thanks for the, the interview.
1: My pleasure. I have been speaking with Ramez Nam, the author of Apex and the Complete Nexus Trilogy, and Apex won the Philip K. Dick Award this year. And I've also interviewed uh, the other nominees for that award, Brenda Cooper, Douglas Lane, PJ Manny, Marguerite Reed, and Adam Rakunis. Uh, and you can find all those interviews on the science fiction page of the New Books Network. In addition to Ramaz Nam's earlier interview from 2012, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other podcasting apps, and to follow us on Facebook under NB Science Fiction and on Twitter under the handle New Books Sci-Fi. The podcast logo is by Michael Thibodeau, and the beautiful theme music was composed by Michael Aaron. Uh, Marshall Poe is the editor of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf author of The Alternate Universe and The Escape. Follow me on Twitter at RobWolfBooks. And thank you very much for listening.